Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Springport podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler, filling in for Greg Store. The justices continue to issue opinions, albeit at a very slow drip. With just one opinion day last week, they yielded four opinions in argued cases. That's right. Uh, Kimberly, that leaves us with, what are we up to now? 23 cases to go. And about three weeks to do it, if they want to end before July. Yeah, I think we definitely want to get out of there before the July 4th holiday. So two of the cases that we got were pretty major. So we're going to jump into our conversation with our guests to talk about those. Uh, Joining us is Goodwin's William Jay, who has argued 17 cases at the high court. Um, And Willie, the last time that you and I talked, you told me something a little wild, which was that you've argued, what was it, five IP cases at the court, and that Justice Thomas had written the majority or dissent in all of them, but he's never asked you a question at oral argument yet. That's right. They were all (laughs) pre-pandemic. Right. So that's changed a little bit. Um, But that makes you a great guest to talk about uh, our second case today. But first, we're going to chat about Allen, in which the court rejected a Republican-drawn congressional map in Alabama and upheld a lower court decision that requires a second uh, majority black district. And I wanted to start off by asking you um, if you were surprised. I mean, I can think I think this is my 11th term covering the Supreme Court now, and this is really, truly one of the only times that I was surprised by what happened. Uh, what about you? You are, you probably saw this coming. <laughs> I, I was surprised by the outcome, not just because of how the oral argument went, but also because the court had granted a stay of the uh, district court's decision. Now, there were certainly plenty of indications in the stay ruling that some of the justices in the middle of the court might not have been comfortable forecasting how they would vote on the merits. Uh, you know, Justice Kavanaugh, I think, basically said as much, and the, the Chief Justice would have denied the stay and allowed the injunction to go into effect. And those were the two justices who joined the three more liberal justices to form a majority in this case. Can you talk to us about how this case came about and what exactly was the issue here? You know, just give us a little background. This is a case under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which is a provision that was expanded in the 1982 amendments to that statute and has been an important part of districting litigation ever since. Um, It doesn't say that everything that has some perceptible effect on minority voters is unlawful, but it does set up a way for plaintiffs to say, even if this is not intentionally and unconstitutionally racially discriminatory. We nonetheless are challenging the effect of this districting map or certainly other things uh, can be challenged under the Voting Rights Act as well, such as polling stations or uh, absentee ballot requirements or things like that. But districting has been one of the biggest. And in order to get that through what was then a Democratic House and a Republican Senate and a Republican president, the compromise brokered by then-Senator Bob Dole was that the effects test that the civil rights groups and proponents of the amendment uh, wanted would go in, but there would also be a proviso that new Section 2 was not requiring proportional representation by race. And that really is the, uh, the focal point of litigation like this, which is about whether Alabama which has a black population of about two-sevenths of the state, should have two and not one 
majority black congressional districts out of seven. Right. So, you know, I I think this is unquestionably a victory for, um, you know, for for those on the left. But it's sort of odd to me that what this case did was sort of refuse to make any changes to Section 2. What Alabama had been asking was really to kind of uh, view Section 2 and and make it more of a colorblind provision. Um, And the court rejects that. And yet it's seen as this really big victory. and, And it is. And we should all, you know, sort of recognize that. But I wonder sort of what it says about the kinds of cases that the court is taking that just sort of preserve the status quo is seen as a victory for one side. Well, consider that the court has no choice but to take cases like this. This is one of those unusual cases that is tried not before a single district judge, but before a special three-judge district court. There's a special statute that requires that for challenges to a statewide districting plan. And then once the three-judge district court rules, you skip the Court of Appeals entirely and you go to the U.S. Supreme Court on what's called mandatory appellate jurisdiction. They don't have to hear argument, they don't have to write an opinion, but they can't just say, we don't feel like hearing the case. Any decision they hand down is on the merits, and so generally they do what's called noting probable jurisdiction instead of granting certiorari. So they really don't have a choice but uh, except to face up to the merits of any of these cases. And then this is also a case in which not only is there a lot of jurisprudential history under Section 2, Congress has, in fact, reauthorized the Voting Rights Act since kind of the key precedent for cases like this is a case from 1986 called Thornburg versus, I believe it's pronounced Jingles. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I was curious to see how you were going to pronounce it. I've heard it like 12 different ways. (laughs) I was was 10, uh, and so I wasn't there, but uh, I've always said Jingles. You know, it was interesting to me that this majority decision came from the Chief Justice because... I mean, doesn't he have kind of a long history of here of trying to dismantle the Voting Rights Act, you know, given that he authored the decision in the Shelby County case? And also, you know, I had read elsewhere that, you know, during his time in the Reagan administration that he really, you know, this was something that he tried to, a law he tried to undercut. Can you talk to us a little bit about his history here? And is it a break? Is this decision a break from his, you know, past decisions? So it's funny that this is coming up because a long time ago, I was a staffer on the Senate Judiciary Committee for the confirmation hearings on nominee John Roberts. And one of the tasks I was given was reading all of those memos that he wrote as a young lawyer about the Voting Rights Act reauthorization. You're the perfect person for this question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I really think that the idea that he's had a 30-year project to kill the Voting Rights Act is overblown and you know, rests on some bad information and bad assumptions. I do think that uh, some of the stuff that he wrote was skeptical of whether it would be a good idea to add the effects test into Section 2 in 1982. Uh, and of course, there were plenty of others in Congress who shared that view and that resulted in the dole compromise being added. Um, but you know, his task as a judge is not just to decide whether it's good policy or bad policy. Uh, and I think you can see that in the decision. He, the court is trying to figure out how to uh, give effect to both parts of Section 2, both the proviso and the basic effects test. Uh, and then the, the requirements of the Constitution are hovering over all of that. 
Um, Shelby County involved a different provision of the Voting Rights Act, which was, I think everyone agrees, one of the most uh, aggressive uses of Congress's power to enforce the Reconstruction Amendments by saying that state and local governments could not pass new legislation or change voting practices or procedures without permission of the federal government or a federal court. And the Shelby County decision said basically, without updating the formula for who's covered by that, you can't just rest on the fact that it was uh, an appropriate piece of legislation in the mid-1960s. Now, that certainly was a controversial decision, and lots of people disagree with it very passionately. But Section 5 and Section 2 are quite different. Right, right. I think you're right that Chief Justice Roberts's majority opinion really um, hits on the fact that this is an area where, you know, the Supreme Court has come up with a decision. Congress has, has been aware of it for almost 40 years. They've sort of amended the Voting Rights Act in Section 2. They haven't touched this procedure. Um, and it was interesting to me that Justice Kavanaugh, in his concurring opinion, talked about how stare decisis um, is sort of more robust in, in cases where you're dealing with statutes because Congress can make those changes if they disagree with them. But he pointed out it's not so much the case in constitutional cases. And I I wondered, you know, I've all along been thinking about this case and affirmative action and to a lesser extent, the Indian Child Welfare Act cases as sort of of the same thread of this idea of um, whether or not, you know, the Constitution requires a colorblind Constitution or what does the 14th Amendment really do? Um, It seemed to me like maybe Justice Kavanaugh was saying like, hey, everybody, we have this decision in the voting rights case, but this might not be how we come out on affirmative action. Was that did you sort of take that signal or am I reading too much into it? I definitely uh, agree with those who have read this decision as uh, making it more likely and not less that the court is going to invalidate uh, either UNC's or Harvard's affirmative action programs. Now, obviously, this decision is argued you know, separately. The votes were cast when they were cast, but I do think that uh, and there are some hints in the uh, in the Supreme Court's decision in this case that just because this districting plan is held to violate the Voting Rights Act and the court wasn't prepared to say that that would be unconstitutional uh, doesn't doesn't mean that it is giving a free pass to every effort to take race into account for what might be called diversity more broadly. What struck me really um, was that the chief justice put a lot of emphasis in his decision in this case on, um, you know, the court's past precedent and also congressional intent, um, as as Kimberly mentioned before. But I'm wondering, did you is there anything we can read in from or read into from this decision? I'm just I'm wondering if you think that the chief was trying to kind of send a broader message about institutionalism and respecting past precedent, you know, to his more conservative colleagues on the bench. I'm not sure I would go so far as to say that he was sending a message to his colleagues, um, you know, or nor Justice Kavanaugh. I mean, I think that this is obviously an important statute and the decision is going to have significant political impacts. Uh, People are already counting the number of states that might have to uh, redistrict as a result of this reasoning. But although keep in mind that this case was one in which the challengers won at trial. They had experts. The the state had experts. There was a big battle about whether their computer simulations were persuasive evidence or instead 
uh, just showed that the whole thing was motivated by race and uh, a different trial in a different state might come out differently. Right. You, you I mean, you, you mentioned at the top a little bit about this. So you hinted at this, but, um, you know, the the petitioners here did win below, um, but the justices paused the lower court's decision requiring the, the state redraw its districts. And that meant that the old map, which the court has now found to um, likely be unlawful, was used in those very close midterm elections. And it was done under this um, Purcell principle that says, you know, if we're really close to an election, uh, we're not going to change the rules. We're going to kind of stick with the status quo. A lot of sort of debate about what really close means or what close means. What I mean, does this case and the ultimate outcome teaches anything about that Purcell principle and how useful it may be or how dramatic the effect may be of sort of these shadow docket rulings? Um, There certainly can be significant effects in the sense that if this ruling had come earlier, Alabama would have had to use different map in the last election. But I don't see anything in this decision it would make me think Justice Kavanaugh is thinking to himself, it was a mistake to grant that stay because it's not just about who's going to win. It's about what should happen while the Supreme Court is hashing out what obviously was a close decision. And it's not just that the maps have been declared unlawful. Uh, you have to draw new maps. You'd have to run new primaries. I mean, you have to reopen filing for the uh, and uh, Alabama is a state that has runoffs. So there's a whole bunch of work to be done in between a court decision and actually getting new maps in place, either through the court or through the legislature. The shadow docket is sort of the scary name that people give to the court's emergency uh, docket where people ask the court to take urgent action pending a ruling on the merits. And often those emergency rulings turn more on what would be worse in the interim rather than who's going to win at the end of the day. And I think this this is such a case. So, um, Willie, we want to move on now to the other significant um, decision that we got on Thursday, um, you know, in that big trademark case, Jack Daniels versus VIP products. And I'll just start, you know, the way that Justice Kagan's unanimous opinion for the court does, which is, you know, she says this case is about dog toys and whiskey, two items uh, seldom appearing in the same sentence. Can you remind our listeners, you know, what's going on in this case? This is a case about trademarks. And Jack Daniels has a whole bunch of trademarks on its logo, its name, even the shape of its bottle, which is the trade dress associated with its product. And Bad Spaniels is an example of a dog toy, one of a line of dog toys that parodies liquor products. And it has about the same shape bottle. It uh, mocks uh, everything from the nickname Old Number 7 to the name Jack Daniels. Uh, And Jack Daniels was not as amused by it as I was when I first (laughs) learned about it uh, and sued, uh, well, I sent a nasty letter saying that Bad Spaniels was an infringement of Jack Daniels' trademark, basically because people would think that this is a dog toy that's licensed by or affiliated with the whiskey company and that given the uh, mildly gross humor 
on the product that it would damage Jack Daniels's reputation. And that wound up being what the litigation was about. Yeah, I think there were some poop references on the dog toy. <laughs> yes, it was old number two instead of old number seven. <laughs> okay, so the case centers around this Rogers test. Um, can you tell us what that is, sort of what is it meant to get at in the trademark space? It was intending, I think, to give extra breathing room to so-called expressive works. Uh, the Rogers test comes from the Second Circuit, the appeals court in New York, and Rogers is actually Ginger Rogers, the actress, and she had sued over a movie that wasn't affiliated with her, but but used the names Fred and Ginger. And the Second Circuit had said essentially, yeah, this is the kind of expressive work that shouldn't be choked off by uh, a trademark owner's control of their own, you know, their own mark or name or uh, or logo or, or the like. Um, and what the Supreme Court said in this case is, we are not speaking to whether that's the right way to approach so-called expressive works in general, but it is certainly not the way to approach the name of a product that people use to identify it. So here, Bad Spaniels calls its product Bad Spaniels, and everyone uses it to identify that product, distinguish it from other dog toys. I think they even have their own trademarks in it. So uh, the Rogers test of special treatment for expressive works doesn't apply, the Supreme Court said, to basically uh, things you apply to a product to indicate its source. And those get treated just like garden variety trademark litigation without pausing to worry about whether bad spaniels is expressive in the same way as fine art. Yeah. There was another claim made in this case that VIP's use of the trademark diluted it because it was likely to cause confusion. What did the court say about that, about that confusion? Yeah, I mean, the, the court dealt with that somewhat more quickly, um, you know, and, and said, uh, again, this is not a special uh, type of case. I think the phrase is dilution by tarnishment, right? Uh, and uh, the idea of the court's holding, which it said was the easy part of this decision, that there's no way to just call yourself a parody and get away with selling a commercial product that tarnishes your competitor. Mm. Wonder what you think is going to be the practical result of both um, the infringement and dilution holdings in these cases. Like what what on the ground is that going to mean for trademark holders or those wanting to, uh, you know, spice up their dogs' lives? There definitely is a market for funny versions of well-known trademarks, you know, you know, whether those are luggage or fashion or whiskey bottles. You don't have a free pass to say, I can come up with my parody brand just by saying that it's a parody and not worrying about whether I infringe the you know, famous Jack Daniels Mark or Louis Vuitton or Nike or whatever, but it's still subject to the basic rule of trademark that there has to be confusion between the two products for one to be able to exclude the other. And that's why people all the time use the same mark on completely different goods because nobody would confuse, you know, the same name on copiers and sushi, you know, or things that are very different. Um, so 
there's always the requirement that the trademark owner prove that somebody would confuse the infringer's product with the trademark owner's. Here, they had a survey and they actually had a trial about whether people thought Bad Spaniels was affiliated with Jack Daniels. And uh, the survey uh, evidence convinced the trial court that yes, there was uh, a likelihood of confusion. Justice Sotomayor and Justice Alito actually wrote a separate uh, concurrence in this case to say essentially, these surveys can be kind of problematic depending on how you set them up. And I think that's uh, something to watch out for in the future. The, the court is casting a bit of a jaundiced eye on the use of surveys uh, of, of consumers to prove likely confusion. Because at the end of the day, trademarks are just about trying to make sure that people know whose product is whose. They're not a, intended to be a complete restriction on speech. It seemed like Justice Kagan um, was tailor-made to write this opinion, um, you know, in describing what the Jack Daniels bottle looked like. You know, she instructs readers to go retrieve a bottle from wherever you keep liquor. It's probably there. Um, and Kimberly and I wrote about this earlier in the term that she's really staked out a kind of a, a writing style for herself as snappy and witty, um, sort of in the mold of your old boss, uh, Justice Scalia. Do you think that that's right, that she's kind of um, kind of stepping into his shoes there in her writing style? Uh, she definitely has a distinctive and enjoyable writing style. I think she's a terrific writer. Uh, it extends, I think, even to her uh, presentation of her opinion on the bench. I gather, although I was not there, that she actually brought the dog toy on the bench and held it up. Uh, she's writing. Her goal, I think, is to be accessible uh, to ordinary people, not just lawyers, law students, and law nerds, but to anyone who wants to understand the work of the Supreme Court. And she tends to write a lot in the second person, like go to your liquor shelf and, and look for a bottle of Jack Daniels. Uh, and she writes in a snappy and colorful way. I, her style is not the same as Justice Scalia's, but it is a distinctive one. It's all her own. It's very authentic. And I think that that was one of the many things that Justice Scalia admired about her as a writer and a colleague. Right. I was um, right after her, Justice Sotomayor had an opinion in a unanimous identity fraud case. And she started out her uh, bench announcement by saying, I'm not going to be as interesting or entertaining as Justice Kagan just was. <laughs> um, and she lived up to that. It was not as entertaining. Um, I wanted to briefly discuss a recent trademark grant that the justices agreed to hear next term. And this one involves a bid to trademark the phrase Trump too small, a riff on the the tiny, tiny hands of the former president. Um, can, can you briefly tell us what's at issue in this case? There's a part of the trademark law that says that the trademark office will not register a mark that consists of or comprises, which I think means includes, the name of a living person without that person's permission. Uh, and there, there are other nuances to it, but that's the basic idea. And so... Uh, the person who wanted to market t-shirts with the trademark slogan Trump too small couldn't get it because he didn't have Trump's permission and challenged that in the appeals court that hears appeals from the trademark office. And that court said that the restriction on granting this type of mark uh, violates the First Amendment and the government has brought that case to the Supreme Court saying, no, it doesn't. Uh, this is a 
viewpoint neutral, which is a, a lawyer word meaning uh, uh, meaning uh, it doesn't discriminate based on pro or con speech, and that it is a legitimate way of uh, policing the trademark registrations. Right. Interesting that the Biden administration, I think, is the one that, that brought this case um, to the court. But again, you know, sort of there are more institutional concerns that cross, you know, uh, different administrations. Uh, well, we'll keep a close eye on that one. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been really helpful. We took you kind of on a on a whirlwind with voting rights and IP stuff. Yeah. Thanks for chatting about both of those cases. Thanks for having me. It's always good to talk to both of you. Well, that's going to do it for the podcast this week. We'll be back soon with more decisions to discuss. The court announced it will be issuing opinions on both Thursday and Friday. As Lydia said at the top of the episode, we've got 23 left to go. You think they're going to finish on time? Ooh, I don't know. Uh, we should totally start an office pool on that. I mean, you can bet on the Supreme Court, right? Is that is that legal? I think there's a there's an opinion about that. Likely. Uh, I think it'll be tight, but um, I, I, I believe that they can do it. Come on, court. <laughs> well, listeners, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. I felt like I was in jail every day when I was going to work. I'm like, I got to get out of here. My executive order calls on the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law, we're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive, they can be exploitative. We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit. I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right, this can't be fair, how can she get away with this? And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat. I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules. And you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry. Plus, does the FTC under chair Lena Khan even have the power to pass this rule? Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition. There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition. Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.